Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood. Welcome to the Rathbones Look Forward series. We're speaking to some of the great thinkers, journalists and writers of our time, focusing on the future of our changing world. My guest this week is Philip Collins, Times columnist, author and former chief speechwriter to Prime Minister Tony Blair. His latest book, Start Again, How We Can Fix Our Broken Politics, offers a roadmap to a different political destination. What sort of nation does Britain wish to be? We're talking about the future of politics. Philip, these are extraordinary times and you talk in your book about the British political landscape being broken. Why why broken rather than just in disarray at this time? I mean, is this really particularly different from other times? Yes, I think it is different. I think it's different for for two big reasons, uh, one of which is Brexit and the other which is the state of the political parties. Take the European process first. That has really fractured the parties. And it has made a big change in the electorate as well because people, the re- the referendum of June 2016 really changed people's affiliation. And the way people are voting now in the 2017 election is different from the way they had previously. No longer on a class basis, much more now on a cultural basis. So the politics doesn't reflect that. Politics is fractured in that sense. And the other way is that the... The activists on the extremes of both the two main parties are now in control. So the Conservative Party is leading Britain out to the European Union, and it, the, the tail is wagging the dog in the Tory party. The, the really hardcore Brexiteers are, are in a position of real privilege and power. And the Labour Party has shifted very sharply to the left, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn is there and ensconced and very difficult to remove. So the two parties are in very different positions than they have been on any previous occasion. It's almost always the case in British politics that when one party is going through a troubled time trying to sort itself out, the other party is sensibly in government getting on with it. And at the moment, you've got both parties going through a, a really kind of tumult and a kind of what I think is a tantrum at the same time. So I think there is more space between them. Is this partly as well because uh, of the simply because the class system has changed in the UK and a lot of people who as parents would have identified as working class would now say that they were middle class, that they'd moved towards the middle class and therefore that kind of traditional labour heartland we might have thought had simply disappeared. In fact, it's actually remodelled itself. Well, no, I think it has disappeared. I think that it has been a big change. I think the, the, the class changes are very, very important. And the, the most crucial thing is I think we're not voting on class lines anymore. Class, for the first time in 2017, was useless at predicting people's vote. So you take the two Labour seats with the largest majorities in the country, for example, one's in Bristol, one's in Liverpool. They have nothing in common demographically at all. One of them's a very middle-class seat, the other's a very working-class seat. So class is no longer useful for predicting our politics. The Tories did better amongst the skilled working class in 2017 than Labour for the first time ever. So you've got to find some other way of working out how are people voting. And if there is a better way of doing it. If you ask people the question, what do you think about globalisation, good or bad in general? What do you think about immigration, good or bad? A whole series of questions like that. Those people who argue it's on balance a force for the good tend to, will have voted 
to remain in the European Union, and they will overwhelmingly have voted Labour or Liberal Democrat. People on the other side of those questions will have voted Leave, and they will have voted Conservative. So that's now the divide. And so it's, politics is really quite different, and it's been, a, it's been a long time coming. There's not just an immediate effect of the referendum. It's been declining uh, for a long time, but it really accelerated over the last couple of years. I want to look at something else that may also be playing into this. I mean, it's, it's probably one of those boxes that you were you were talking about being ticked, and that's the idea of the rising challenge of inequality. Um, the British state needs about seven hundred billion pounds a year. It has to be raised somehow. Um, in your book, you say that taxation in Britain observes no discernible principles at all. Um, and we're taxing what's easy to tax rather than what's right to tax. Talk to me a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's exactly what I say, because, um, as you say, we've got a state of £700 billion and we've got to raise that money somehow. So what you inevitably end up doing in, in government is to, you tax things that will raise that revenue. But that's not the same as taxing the right things. If you were to start with a blank sheet of paper and think, well, what would it be good to tax rather than not so good to tax? Ideally, you'd tax nothing, but we've got to tax something. So let's try and tax bad things rather than good things as a first principle. Obviously, when you've got pollutants and things, externalities, as they're called in the literature, let's tax those. But given that we're going to have to tax some things, which we'd rather not, I would rather tax, I suggest in the book, wealth, which sits there idly, than I would income, which where people have directly earned that money. We don't do that in Britain. And the inequality that you asked about is a wealth inequality. Income inequality in Britain is absolutely flat over 30 years. It didn't go up under the Labour government. It was static. And it was pretty static under the coalition as well. But wealth inequality has grown enormously. And that is principally about housing. Mm. So you've got a whole generation of whom I'm a beneficiary beneficiary who have got housing assets where my house earns more money than I do. I don't really, in any meaningful sense, earn that money. I'm just lucky. I was fortunate to get in at the right time. And there's no reason, in principle, why that should not be taxed. There's loads of reasons in politics why it shouldn't be taxed. It's very difficult to do, which is why I say I want to shift the burden away from income towards wealth. I don't want to create, I don't want to raise more tax overall, but I do want to shift it to places to where where your our wealth is accumulating and people like me inadvertently are blocking the next generation. Let's talk a little bit more about that because we've we, obviously we have a stamp duty here in the UK. Is that that clearly doesn't seem to be enough for you? Are you thinking about a more of a John McDonnell type of of tax? Yeah, or a Vince Cable tax. I'm, I'm thinking of, a, of a, what they call the mansion tax. Yeah. I mean, I think the place to start actually is the council tax. The council tax has not been revalued since 1991. So at the moment, over th- any, any property over 300,000 pays exactly the same. And as you know, in, in not just in London, but especially in London, 300,000 doesn't buy very much these days. So you've got people who are not at all rich paying exactly the same property tax as people who are immensely rich. And I think that's really, really absurd. So if you just revalued properties from 1991 to current prices, that would already raise a lot of money and that would be equivalent to a kind of mansion tax. The other area of wealth, of course, is inheritance taxes. Is, is, uh, that, in a way has almost been skipped over. It's very easy these days, uh, providing that your parents or grandparents live long enough, for you to almost tax plan your way out of that. It is, absolutely. And inheritance tax is just about the most unpopular tax in the country. People really, really dislike it. So it's very brave of me to advocate it, because I'm advocating shifting inheritance tax from the gift 
to the receipt. So I'm not taxing the the gift. I'm going to tax me as a receiver of that gift because, for the same reason, I've not done anything to earn it. the The principle I run through all of my taxation section is that between earned and unearned income, and it's a it's an old principle. It comes from the 1911 budget and uh, Lloyd George and Asquith, and it's a blurred line. Sometimes it's not not easy to know whether this is a earned or an unearned income. But anything I've just been given, I haven't earned. My parents earned it, but I didn't. And so that seems to me reasonable to tax it. Um, I wouldn't tax it too heavily because, of course, people feel that they want to pass on things to their um, family, and you can have a threshold to ensure that. And they feel, that... of course, that they earned it. Yes, they do. Mm. They do. I understand that yeah, too. Yeah. There are competing principles here, yeah. and so and the principle of passing on to family is also an important one. So I'm not sort of some sort of reaper taking all everything from them, uh, but by the same token, uh, the principle of earning the money requires that we can that is available to be taxed like other things. Now, let's talk as well about uh, tax avoidance and about some of those big multinationals. You know, we hear a lot these days about Facebook and Apple and Google and Cafe Nero and all these people who aren't paying their taxes. Again, does this fall into your principle of these are people that are too hard to tax and therefore the government has has skipped them? It it does. I mean, it's one of the exactly right. One of the problems you've got with um, these companies, which are everywhere and yet also nowhere, it's really hard to know how you can get what is in fact due. And if inheritance tax is unpopular, surely that must be one of the most popular taxes. Very popular, very uh, entirely just, absolutely right and very popular. And pretty much everybody in politics agrees with it. And it's really a question of implementation. There are two things you can do. One is you can tax their property because that's visible there. Google may pretend to have no profits, but I can see them. Yes, They're there. We can go and look, uh, we can go and look at them. Very we can, close to we here can tax fact. them there. The other thing you could do is you could tax sales. So rather than tax their profit, which they can manipulate and move around the the globe quite easily, their sales in any given country are much more visible. So there are ways you can do it. And I'd just be braver about it. I'd say, look, if you're you're taking advantage of a good hospitable place to do business with a well-trained workforce, there is a price that you pay for that. And the price that you pay for it is taxation. Let's move on now and talk about trust in politics and politicians. You make the point that... um, it's not a vocation that's likely to inculcate trust because it's unpredictable and indeed it's it's adversarial. And often the changes that we see, even when a government is doing the right thing, um, they're slower than the electorate have patience for. Yeah, politics is very hard. It's really difficult to make change and it's very, very difficult to get any gratitude for any change that comes about. People notice things that go wrong and blame the government, and that's fair enough in a democracy, but they very rarely stop and say, oh, thank you to the government for the slight diminution in the welfare bill and the slight change in income inequality. Nobody ever does that kind of thing. So it's very difficult to to get trust in politics. And so I'm, I'm a bit less worried about the decline in trust than most people tend to be because there's never been very strong trust in politicians. And, and a little bit of mistrust is a quite healthy thing in a democracy too. Once upon a time, we were very, very deferential to our politicians and I don't want to go back to that. A certain raucous dissent in our argument is a good thing. Have we changed as well a little bit in our own, uh, maybe our own knowledge of the whole media and political sphere? I mean, I'm just thinking back to uh, in, in Tony Blair's day, there was an awful lot of talk about spin. 
spin doctors and spinning and speeches and all of that. These days, we talk less about that. Do you think that because we are more socially media aware and we understand perhaps um, the media and politics a little bit more, that the general public doesn't seem to be as bothered by spin as they used to be? Yeah, I think that's true. But I think it's for two, two not very great reasons. One, one is that we've become quite cynical about politicians. So we are building in our scepticism yes. from the beginning. So I think you're right that, that that era had an impact in that we're no longer taking at face value anything that's said. And of course, that's a good thing not to take things just at face value on authority to interrogate them and criticise them. I think we've tipped over into a kind of cynicism. One of the things I, reason I've written the book is to try and argue the case for politics a little bit, say that not everybody goes into politics with bad intentions and not everything done is bad. And when it is done, it's usually because of a cock-up, not because they're terrible people doing terrible things. The other big change, of course, is social media. So we all of us have our direct roots into politics and into the into the public realm that we didn't have 20 odd years ago. And so. indeed, politicians have a direct route. I mean, I think, I wonder, you know, back in the days of Tony Blair, it would have been almost unthinkable that he, all on his own, in his, you know, in his bathroom or in his car or on, on holiday or whatever, could have been <laughs> tweeting to the world about what he thought, about, you know, off the top of his head, yes, without I'm... talking to advisors and indeed having, you know, ch- chatting about how that would play out. That's right. I mean, Tony Blair, in one sense, seems a very contemporary figure, and yet he's also a historic yes. figure in yes. the sense that he didn't even have a mobile phone yeah. when he was in office. I mean, mobile phones did did exist, mm. but he didn't use one. And Gordon Brown it's extraordinary, a, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and uh, he, he tells this story after he ceased being prime minister. He sent his first text to someone who then replied, who didn't have him in his phone, and said, "Well, who are you?" He says, "Look how quickly they forget you." <laughs> so he was a pre pre this era of technology prime minister, and so it was, it's fundamentally different the way in which you communicate. I was a speechwriter and in doing a very old fashioned job, writing a forty minute text to be read out in front of an audience. I mean, how old-fashioned is that, in a way? The thought of him doing it himself at the time would have been extraordinary, Yeah, without any consultation. Well, just doing it in a series of 140 characters over the course of a few days. So what has that done, though? I mean, obviously, I know we can't move very far in this conversation without thinking about Donald Trump, but let's leave him to the side, because there's so much I want to talk about in British politics today. Are, Are UK politicians all also have this ability to tweet. And many people, people, not just journalists, also follow them. So in this Brexit debate, they have the opportunity to talk directly to the public. Does that make a difference in terms of how much we trust them? Could it, in, in fact, improve our trust and their visibility? Well, not many of them are very good at it. I mean, right. I mean, I know we, we don't want to get sidetracked into the President of the United States, but one thing, he is quite good at it, mm-hmm. even though it, it's in a way, I think, uh, shocking and dreadful. Oh, he, I don't think but anyone would argue effective. that he's extremely effective. Extremely effective. Mm. And I don't know that many British politicians have gained that kind of effectiveness yet through the use of it. And they're, they're more cautious in doing so. And they, they also, I think there's also an aspect here of parliamentary government is important because the president has presidential authority and in a sense doesn't have the same restraints on what he in this case says. Um, whereas in, in a parliamentary system, if you're a member of the cabinet, you do have to abide by the collective responsibility. And that applies to your Twitter feed as well. Bear in mind, most of people in poli- who, who, are, who are involved in politics, i.e. the electorate, are not on Twitter and they're not watching politics things on Facebook. So it's very important to keep remembering that 
I mean, apart from the fine people who listen to politics podcasts and, you know, I, I love them, but the vast majority of people don't notice anything that goes on in politics and they've switched off. And so in, a, in one way, the Brexit debate has been good in that it maybe has brought back some sort of attention. But even there, most people are not watching. A significant minority of people think we've already left the European Union and quite a large number are bored to tears with it. And, and I number myself amongst them. <laughs> I want to ask about holding politicians to account for their claims. Um, we can't move too far away uh, from the three hundred and fifty million pounds uh, to the NHS on that bus. We are never going to be able to hold those politicians to account, are we? Does that matter? It does matter. Um, I don't know that we won't. I mean, they, they, they come up for election. We, we, it's conceivable, as, we, as we're talking, that a second referendum might happen at some point. Um, and, or, 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 and or a general election. And or a general election. At the moment, everything is feasible, and no, but nothing is likely. It is possible by the time you hear this podcast, by the way, that you know the answer to those questions. But right now, we don't. As Britain we're may not it. exist. So we're in such a <laughs> state of tumult. But if you think of the politicians who made those claims, <laughs> that, that specific one, £350 million, pounds, yes. in a way, the system has found a way of holding them to account. Because Boris Johnson has been into government and out again, and his reputation has been diminished. Maybe he'll have a second coming. I don't know. I actually suspect not. Um, David Davis has come into government and gone again. So they're, they're not necessarily sort of in clover, those people. And there will be an opportunity to judge the government come the election time. I don't know if there's any other way of holding those to account than through periodic elections. Well, to talk a little bit about the media, it does obviously play a huge role in determining how deep the level of political discourse is and how factual and... You know, we've angsted an awful lot to, uh, at the BBC about how we deal with uh, equivalent impartiality and balance and all of those things. We do have a, a soundbite-seeking uh, society at the moment. It's simply the way, and it will continue to be the way, I think, that um, news is delivered, particularly as we're more and more of us are getting news on a smartphone. Um, we've also got, a, a, we are about perhaps to have another one, a TV debate, um, and it seems like uh, elections will be more and more decided on those. What are the answers to those challenges? Well, I'm, again, a little bit less worried than some people are. I think TV debates are a good thing. Uh, I think to have um, prime time television with the, the country's senior politicians arguing out a serious issue is a real boost for democracy. I think it's a good thing. Sometimes those politicians are not up to that task. Sometimes the debates are poor. But that's a different question. We need better politicians. But I'm not, I don't blame media there. Um, I don't, neither am I that worried either about soundbites. It depends on the quality of them. I mean, I, I, as a speechwriter, my, my first book was all about the great speeches and every single one of the famous speeches ever delivered can all be recognised by their soundbite because it's a great description of the argument. So the soundbite is an Tear achievement. Tear down that wall. You know, That's yes, right. Uh, yeah, 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 ask not what your country can mm -hmm. do for you. I, I have the heart and stomach of a king. So all of the great famous ones can be reduced to a soundbite. That's because the soundbite's a brilliant description of the argument. So if we were talking about that, I wouldn't mind at all. 
often what we get, though, is a sort of trade in abuse. So I am worried about how uncivil, how discourteous and rude political conversation has become. And social media is really worrying in that respect. And I'm also worried about how invisible some politics is now. It used to be the case where you could see your opponent and you could hear them. And that's also that's true on radio. It's true on television. It's obviously less true on Facebook, where you actually are unsure of the provenance of some of the things that you're reading. And I think that's the much bigger danger rather than the the traditional media. Indeed. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the electorate themselves because that slogan, taking back control, was an incredibly powerful one. Some slogans work really well and some slogans don't. And that one seemed to really capture the public imagination at this juncture. And I wonder if there is a feeling amongst many people that they really don't have much control in their lives particularly in the way that this country is run. And perhaps that's not something that changes at national government, but but at local government, um, that allows people to feel more connection to politics and more connection about what politics is doing for them, because perhaps it is working for them and people are just not as aware of it as they could be. Oh, I strongly agree that we need to push power back closer to people, because I think... They're quite right, actually, to say it's not working particularly well for them. Britain is far too centralised. And in the book, I have a whole series of ways in which you can push power further down, nearer to people. It's not that you want people to have to turn up and be on a load of committees. People don't want to get involved in that sense. But what they would like is some visible display that things are changing in their area and if you gave local government more power there'd be a much greater chance of that because a local government understands the local needs better than the distant central government britain is a uniquely centralized country and we need to push a lot more power down and that would be one way in which you get the sense of people taking back control the other is material because the the, take back control was a fantastic slogan because it manages to combine together loads of different feelings of my life not being very good or progressing very far so for every person i bet take back control means something subtly different and that's a compliment to it because that's what you try to do with political slogans so a lot of that question will be material job progression wage progression it's not surprising when we've had 10 years without average with no average wage growth that people feel as though their lives are a bit out of control that's absolutely not uh, a surprise at all. I bet if we'd had really flourishing economic growth for a decade prior to the referendum, take back control wouldn't have resonated in the same way. So it is a real thing. And I think people on the Remain side, and I was on that side, who disparage the campaign that won the referendum and say it was all made up. I'm really missing something very important. It, it captured a genuine feeling and which is not just an emotional reaction, that emotional reaction is rooted in real things. So there are a set of very serious questions underneath the Brexit vote, in my view, which politics after Brexit has to address. One of the uh, results of a lack of faith in politics is that individuals simply don't vote. Um, it will be interesting if we're in a situation where we, are, we have another vote in the near future, be it a, a general election or a, a second referendum or indeed both, um, what the turnout figures were um, or are. They, in 2017, we, we could say that people were rather sick of general elections and uh, the turnout was uh, 68.7. It does seem crazy in a way that that first-past-the-post system allows that small section, that there, there is actually then a small section of the 
public, of the of the electorate who decide what happens within our world. Is it time to look at changing both our, the voting system and how we how we get people out to vote? I think so, yes. I mean, as you say, the, the system is, is we have a, a, a small turnout, about 60-odd percent, but then, as you say, that it's only in those constituencies yes. that change hands, the marginal constituencies that really decide the election. So elections are decided by a very small number of people. So, yes, I do think it's time to change it. I would move to a, a more um, representative and proportional electoral system. I've always thought that. It's not just because I think a small party would benefit from it. It's always been my view. But I and that's probably the uncontroversial part. The more controversial part is, I, I suggest, as you imply, that we should move to compulsory voting. Now, I'm, as a general rule, as someone who regards himself as a liberal, I'm not really in favour of compulsion for things. But I think on this, in this case, the, the, the benefits outweigh the downside. The main benefit I see is that if you look at the only group who have been exempted from austerity over the last decade are pensioners. And the essential reason for that is that pensioners vote in large numbers and they vote Conservative. So the Conservative government more or less exempted them from it. Now, I'm not, I don't want to take money from pensioners. Before I, I, Whenever I write about this, people write to me and say, you obviously hate old people. I say, I don't hate old people. I like I'm going to be one yeah, Exactly. One day. <laughs> I say, I, I like them so much, I intend to become one. Yeah. So I don't hate old people, but you can't have policy skewed towards one group for a long period because you've then got people in their 30s who can't buy houses even though they're in professional jobs. So one way you can break this is change the incentives for politicians. If everybody was voting, in Australia they have compulsory voting and they get turnout of over 90%, if everyone votes, then suddenly your policy requirements of the politicians really change. And it takes away that idea that people, thinking people, say, I am not going to vote because that is the point I'm making. You know, you hear that actually quite a lot where people say, I'm exercising my right not to vote and perhaps... I don't want to. I don't want to sound as if I know better than they do. But what they're actually saying is that, you know, although they believe that, of course, that actually doesn't change the system. That embeds the system that we currently have. It doesn't help. Yeah, if you do that. I mean, of course, you'd still be free to spoil your ballot paper if you wanted to. But as you as you say, that doesn't really get us anywhere. We have got the politicians in front of you that we've got, and the idea would be to to ask for better ones. And you can't hold them to account if you've given up your opportunity to to cast a vote. I want to talk about Britain's public services now. We've touched on uh, our 10 years of austerity. Um, you talk in your book about the care and education as being organised almost along the lines of emergency services at the moment, reacting to problems. Why is this and what can we learn from other countries? Well, they are organised as emergency services. The things have to go badly wrong before they turn up. You know, the National Health Service is non, none of those three things. It's not national because its variations are incredibly big regionally. Um, it's not a health service. It's an emergency service. It's, it's fixing people who, where something's gone wrong. It's not increasing their health. And it's not a single service. It's many, many different services. And I think we need to try and shift some of our focus to preventing people um, getting ill in the first place. This is a much bigger question than it's ever been before. If you go back to the early 20th century, most of the diseases we got were the diseases of a relatively poor country because people were dying of the sorts of things you get when you've not got enough money. We're now dying of diseases of rich countries, which is to say we're living a lot longer. 70% of the NHS budget is taken up by chronic conditions, people who are managing their own condition for a long period. So we're, we are ill 
for quite a long time, but not fatally so. We are we're ca- perfectly capable of living a, f- a full life, but we need attention. And this is what's taking all the money. So we've got to change the, the focus of the NHS. And the more we can do to stop the next generation of people becoming diabetic and obese and encountering all those health problems, the more... the the main thing is the better it is for them, but obviously that then also in a you know a very bloodless way saves a, f- a fortune for us. So we've got to find a way of shifting resources into prevention uh, and away from what we're doing. That's always hard because there's no way any, any politician is going to say we're going to take the existing budget and all those people in hospital. Well, never mind them. We're going to give it all to prevention. Of course, he can't do that. The way to pay for that would appear to be to raise taxes, at least for a time, um, in order to have both prevention and current treatment. I think that's probably unavoidable because you, you do get a double funding problem and we, you have to get through it. Um, otherwise, we're just going to keep chasing illnesses. And if we're going to do anything in the longer term, you have to assume there would be savings coming through quite quickly, but it does mean in, the, in that initial period you have to find extra money. Let's talk a little bit as well about um, prisoners. You say there could be that 35,000 prisoners whose felony is in some way drug-related in Britain. Uh, we're looking at a current knife crime epidemic in London as well, and the police say that that is largely drug-fuelled. Um, where can we look elsewhere at patterns that have actually helped them look thinking about other countries where they've dealt with this problem perhaps better than we're dealing with it at the moment yeah we don't deal with it very well at all i mean we we we've followed a sort of american pattern which is just about the worst way of dealing it with australia deals with it a lot better than we do many european countries do because what they do is they they try and get people who've got drug problems into drug related places rather than into prison because they have committed a crime, so they do have to be punished, but the reason they've committed a crime is their drug dependency, and that's the critical thing. So the idea is to keep criminals who are drug dependent and people who've committed a crime criminals who are not separate. That's right. And I think there's a number of categories of prisoners who shouldn't be in prison. I think there's lots of people who are in there for indebtedness, many of whom are women who are left with a family budget who really ought not to be in prison. You know, they're not not criminals in the sense that you think of imprisonment requiring. But the biggest group are those who are drug dependent and they need help and we need to be a lot better at giving help to people who are in prison because they otherwise will simply become recidivists and they'll come back again and we're very bad at that revolving door the other big thing we need to do for people in prison is is teach them to read the illiteracy is a really obvious predictor of people ending up in prison so if we were to get our literacy programs right earlier on we will without even trying to reduce our prison population so we need to be a lot more imaginative about uh, the way we do prison. At the moment, what we do is we kind of herd them in there, lots of them, with very tough sentencing, and we close the doors because we've got this view that prison works. Prison does work if all you want to do is take the dangerous people off the streets, and that is important. Mm-hmm. Public order requires it, and also justice requires it, but it's not enough. You have to also then, once they're in there, do the slightly less popular thing of actually helping them. Otherwise, you're just breeding criminals for the next generation. You're talking about reading. Um, The early years uh, system was working extremely well, many would say, um, and money has been taken out of that funding system. We all know, I think, that the most important uh, phase of anyone's life in terms of education are those very early years, and those are the years where the difference is huge if you have engaged and, um, and educated parents. The state can step in and help there, 
it's not something we're doing at the moment. No, we're not. We're not doing it anywhere near enough. And we, you're right. There was some uh, the system set up. And yeah, it has when been my children back. were young, they it was they had a fantastic system. Is that yeah. Sure Start system was extremely good. That's right. And it seems to have rode away again. It needed it? to be built upon rather than taken uh, pared back. And because I, I very much agree with the, the principle, those early years are absolutely crucial. And that's why I make some hard choices in the book that um, you can't just simply demand money for everything. You've got to be realistic about it. And my own view is if your principle is you want to try and improve life chances for everyone the best way you can spend that money is early in their their child's life it's definitely true for kids from less advantaged backgrounds and therefore you have to make the hard choice within the education budget i don't think we should be spending a fortune on university education for example where the primary beneficiaries of a university education is me the person who receives it uh, my children and why should the state be paying for that? £11 billion, that seems like a very poor use of public money if your principle is social justice. It's a very peculiar thing for the Labour Party to advocate, in my view, on those grounds. And I'd rather see that money used at the earlier part of life where you can give a lot more uh, chance to, to kids who otherwise who aren't doing very well. As I said before, I think the knock-on benefits from that early spending will be enormous in the improved health outcomes, the less likelihood to falling into crime and so on. So I think you probably, even if you're just looking at this from a purely arithmetical point of view, it's going to save us money. But of course, I'm not looking at it from an arithmetical point of view. These are children living their only lives. And I don't think we're doing enough for them at the moment. Let's move on to talk about Britain as a, a tolerant and open society because the referendum triggered an awful lot of talk about immigration and indeed Theresa May has recently said that actually, or, or appears to think that actually immigration was the core of Brexit. I think that that is now very clear in what she's been doing over the past weeks and indeed the talks that she's having at the moment across the country. You make the point in the book that although there are a tiny minority of British people whose opposition to immigration is rooted in prejudice, for most it is probably a more understandable fear, fear about basic services, fears that they, you know, that there aren't enough doctors in their doctor's surgery and that their kids aren't able to get a good education because the classes are full of kids who are not speaking the same language as theirs. I wonder, those are things that we ought to be able to resonate with more. And yet there was a label put on all of those people, perhaps, as being prejudiced if they even brought up immigration. Yeah, and we've got to be very careful about that because I think Theresa May, in one sense, was right to conclude that the most important factor in the referendum was immigration. I think that's true. I think it's governed everything she's done since. And I understand how she's got to the position she's got to. I don't think it's wrong. It's perhaps politically not deliverable, but I, I don't think she was wrong to conclude that. And so we've got to take immigration very, very seriously. The, the, there's one way of doing that is to simply reflect back to people what they're saying to you as a politician, saying, oh, yes, I understand, I feel your pain, you're, you're quite right. But I, I don't advocate doing that because people aren't always right. So you get very strong fears of immigration in places where there are no immigrants. So it, it can't be right. This is a bit like Henry Ford saying, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said, we want faster horses. Exactly. People don't always know, you know what, what it is that they're, they're so worried about. No, they don't, but, but, but they have a fear about something. And, we, and what I'm trying to do in, in my section on immigration is get to the root of what it is. And what do you think it is? Well, I think it's a combination of, of things that you said. I think it's in large part material. It's fear about job insecurity. 
people are in very fragile, insecure jobs with very little prospect of pay progression. And that is not particularly um, caused by immigration. But when they see lower wage immigrants come in, of course, they're worried about it. There's a reasonable worry. They are worried um, about their housing prospects. They are worried about the pressure on public services. All of those things can be addressed separately. And they're also worried, and here I think they're wrong to be worried, but they are, about immigrants coming in and, and having access to welfare benefits and to the health service. And on that last one, I propose a welfare system which has a much greater focus on your contribution. So if you've paid in, if you've paid your taxes over many years, and then you fall out of work at some point, you'd get a higher rate of unemployment benefit than if you were a newcomer. And I do that for all benefits. So that everybody would know that it's just actually not possible for immigrants to come and have the same level of citizen benefits that are available to citizens. This is done in many of the European welfare states. It's not difficult to do. Do you think that politicians have really failed to counter those fears? Because I, I wonder if they were just always nervous to talk about immigration. It was almost easier not to, and to consider the people that did talk about immigration to be prejudiced. Yes, I think that we we have been uh, we've fallen into that trap. You remember, two conversations kind of collided because over a long period, when Britain was really pretty racist country the 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 whole argument was about ceasing to be so and public language became a lot more pleasant and nicer and you think back to what used to be on the tv and it'd be inconceivable to have all that now yes. so that process has gone on and then at the same point we got to a point where actually people had other concerns which got wrapped up in immigration and felt like they weren't allowed to talk about it and it always drives me mad when people say we can't talk about immigration. I seem to talk about nothing other than immigration all the time. But we, do, we need to find a language in which we're addressing immigration, not remotely frightened of the question, but we're breaking it down into what it really means and then we're addressing those things. I, I wonder, if it's a, is it a hangover from that 1970s racism that we really feel that if we bring it up at all that actually you're accused of being a racist or being prejudiced because you're... Or people feel that they are. So if they are to talk about, you know... I mean, I've heard a lot of people couch this conversation by saying, well, I know you you know, I know you might think I'm a racist, but, uh, you know, when I go to my doctor's surgery, I can't get an appointment. And they, uh, the actual fear... It's a, it's a fear about themselves rather than about other people. It is. I, I mean, I've written, I think, before that immigration is not largely about immigrants. It's, it's largely about other things. But there is a residual hangover, and there are some people who have feel those prejudices. That's right. And, and yet I would argue, I'll be quite strong on this, I would argue it's good that they have to say, I'm not a racist, but... That's better than just being straightforwardly racist. That's progress. So I do think there's some residual um, hangover from that. I do feel people feel inhibited in talking about it. What I'm trying to suggest is politicians can lead a conversation which say there's no need to feel inhibited about it at all. Let's talk about it and let's work out what's really at the root of it. And I wonder if, uh, looking forward, we're not quite sure what kind of Brexit we're going, to, we're going to have at the moment, but whatever Brexit we do have, we are going to have immigrants coming into this country. Perhaps they're not going to be coming so much from the EU, but they are then going to be coming from the rest of the world. We're already hearing about, for example, doctor numbers from Southeast Asia will be going up. So whatever happens in future, we need to continue to have this conversation because anyone who thought that the migration problem, if they saw it as a problem, was going to end with Brexit is wrong. And that may indeed mean that they still feel dissatisfied by whatever comes next. I think that's very likely. But I do think you can win that argument. I think you can win the argument by saying we've now got control of our borders. 
Um, it's not true that anyone can come. We choose, and we've got a system, and we are choosing the sort of people we want. And this is a real need for the country, and we need the doctors, and so therefore they're coming in. And generally, if you make an argument like that, people think that's perfectly reasonable. So I, I don't, again, with that small minority who were just against people because they're immigrants, but it's a tiny minority. For the most part, if you make a good rational case that the country has chosen to do this, thing for our own mutual benefit i think that's an argument you can win without yielding to the temptation to sound as though you are yourself anti-immigration because that's the other temptation for politicians that they end up sounding as though they actually side with the people and it's dishonest because they don't i think this happened in the brexit campaign i think some of the free market liberal brexiteers ended up riding the wave of immigration and sort of thinking, oh, well, we need those votes, so we'll, we'll go a bit, we'll soft pedal on the immigration. I think that's dishonest. I think you can't do that. I think you have to say openly, I think immigration is a good thing, and, I'm, and yeah, I understand it doesn't always work for you, but here's the reasons how, why it's going to in the future. Looking again at what kind of nation we want to be and we want Britain to be, how should we make a stand against arms trade? Say, for example, with Saudi Arabia, it's a very key issue at the moment. When we look at what's going on in Yemen, it is extremely difficult for us to feel good about the fact that we're selling arms to Saudi Arabia. And yet, there are a large number of people here who would say that we need to do that because um, if we don't sell arms to Saudi Arabia, somebody else will. Where do we, as a nation, work out our moral compass on that in a way that is both economically relevant and also morally helpful? Well, I take a fairly binary view on that, on arms sales precisely. I just think we should stop. Um, it, it is true that if we don't sell arms to Saudi Arabia, that somebody else will. So let them. Then somebody else is doing it. So I don't feel good about what's happening. And inevitably, when you sell arms to somebody, they're going to be used. That's what they're there for. And it's a very small component of our GDP. It's not crucial to us as an economic trading nation. And we've got the ability to say we're not going to do that. We've got the ability to stand on the high moral ground. I'm not naively supposing everybody else will follow and war will suddenly end. It'll be like a verse of imagine. I don't think it'll be like that at all. However, we would then have the moral right to have a little bit more sway in that argument. And I would choose to do that. Do you feel the same way about climate change too? I mean, we're all aware that actually whatever we do here in Britain uh, is small beer compared to what happens in India and in China. And they have powerful arguments to say that uh, they have not benefited from the kind of industrial revolution times when we didn't care about what we put into the environment that that, that we did in Britain. Um, is it the case that we ought to again take the high moral ground because actually anything else doesn't feel very uh, doesn't feel like it's a britain that we want to do want want to have and when we look down to our children and grandchildren what does it say if we didn't take this ground now when we know what the uh, the implications are yes we should do a hundred percent of what we can do even if that's a small amount globally we should do absolutely everything we can do firstly because it's just the right thing to do there's a problem and we should make our contribution to it as best we can but also as you say the instrumental reason is very important there's absolutely no way we can preach to India and China who quite understandably say, well, you are industrialised in a dirty way. Why can't we? 
we have got a better position in that argument if we are ourselves doing everything that we can. So for both those reasons, I think we need to take it much more seriously. Climate change is one of those issues which has not been captured in ordinary politics. It's still outside politics in some ways. It's never quite become mainstream. And it's, there's an awful lot of energy in the, around climate change pol politics, but not within the system. It's something that really engages people, but the, the, neither of the two main parties have been able to really make it their own issue. And they've never really taken it that seriously. And I, I would suggest that any new politics has to have that really a, a very high priority. It's great to talk to you about uh, what politics uh, should look like. But before you go, I have to ask you what your predictions are as to which party is going to hold power over the next decade. And indeed, what's your best guess on where we are at the moment, where we're likely to be on the 29th of March? All of those questions, of course, linked. Um, I think that every single course of outcome is highly unlikely, but one of them has to happen. <laughs> so my best guess, and I place no great um, likelihood on this at all, my best guess is that we will leave the European Union on 29th of March of next year. And my, I think there are two ways in which we might leave. One will be we leave without a deal, which I think will be a very bad thing indeed. And the other is we leave on a deal other than Theresa May's deal. So some kind of Norway-type revised deal. I think one of those two things is more likely to happen. I don't think we'll have had a general election. I don't think we'll have a second referendum. Though both of those things are possible, but I don't think that will happen. So I think we'll leave. I think that then conditions the next uh, phase of politics. If we leave without a deal and we end up in a recession, the government will be punished for that. And at that point, there's every chance of a Labour government in due course, even under Jeremy Corbyn. If that doesn't happen, if we leave in a soft way with a transition period into a relatively soft landing, then I think the Tories can recover. I think they could then pick a leader from their left and they could they could easily win the next election. But the thing which I'd add in to that, which could change everything, which is really where I end up in the book, is if there were another party in between. If we got to the next election and the option were a Tory party led by Boris Johnson still banging on about Europe, a Labour party led by Jeremy Corbyn banging on about nationalising the electricity service, and in the middle, a party that was not banging on about either of those two things, but was just simply copying out my book and making it government policy, led by somebody articulate and brilliant, who would you vote for? And I think that party could do very well. So that would be the game changer in amongst all of this. Philip Collins, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood.